The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 403, premium for Thursday, June 21st, 2012. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab premium, the show where you send in some questions. Try to provide some answers to those questions. You send in some tips. We share your tips along with some of our own. And together we all try to learn several new things each time we get together. And here it is Thursday for Mac Geek Cab Premium. From Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And I'm sweltering Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How you doing there, sweltering John F. Braun? <laughs> I'm not sweltering at the moment. But, That's good. Uh, Doing great. And we're uh, doing this early. Not that that anyone really knows on the, well, the people that are. The people on the live stream know that we're doing it early. Yeah, because I got a gig to go to in uh, Manhattan. Uh, Another uh, Pepcom show to learn all about new technology. That's right. That's right. And Monday's show, uh, while we're talking about this, will actually also be recorded. Actually, it'll be recorded a full day early on Sunday evening is the plan. I wonder how we're going to feel about that come Sunday, you know. 8 p.m. or so, but uh, but that's the plan. We're going to record Sunday evening so that we can, yeah, uh, so that John can um, get to another event. That's a gadget live. I think, uh, yeah, next week is uh, CE week, okay, or CEA line show. So it's like a week long event. All sorts of little techie things and conferences and exhibits. So uh, yeah, good, cool. So yeah, it's good. It's good that you're flexible that way. Yeah. Well, it sounds like we might have to be. Uh, our schedule might change a little bit more officially soon anyway, but we'll talk about that when it happens. Uh, let's go to Larry. I'm so excited to be podcast. You know, podcasting from the MacBook Air and in the mobile setup is awesome because it's possible. And that's a good thing. And there are some glitches and we got to sort out some audio stuff that seems to happen halfway through the show, as I'm sure many of you heard. But uh, but it is great that we can do this and that it works. Uh, but. I'm always excited when I get back to the studio here and I actually have a slightly larger screen than the 11 inch air. Um, and I can like move around and I've got all my stuff exactly where I want it. And I can sit comfortably as opposed to hunched over the desk with the mic. Anyway, Larry writes in my quest to be rid of a day filled with beach balls. I'm going to be upgrading from my mid 2009, 13 inch MacBook pro to a mid 2012, 13 inch MacBook pro with a 500 gigabyte SSD. I can't wait to not have to wait in preparation for the move. I thought I'd transfer mailboxes that now reside on my Mac over to my IMAP account. I assume this would be as simple as dragging and dropping. However, I've noticed that when I drag multiple mailboxes, only about three successfully copy over. And on a few occasions, the mailbox moves, but not the contents. So is this move over to IMAP a bad idea? Is the way I'm doing it a bad idea? Are there any utilities to simplify the task? I know you're advocating the idea of one big mailbox and letting mail search function do the work, but I'm attached to my hundreds of old mailboxes. Can I call them folders and would like to bring them along with me? All right. Um, moving to me on the surface, moving hundreds of mailboxes to IMAP sounds like uh, a dangerous path. I, I, I just wait. If, if your only goal in this is to get the mail onto your new Mac, I just wait till you get the new Mac and then 
um, just copy the whole uh, it's it's in your home folder in your library folder, which is not obviously accessible online. You have to uh, hold down the option key and the go menu and then and then the library menu will uh, or the library folder will appear there. So that's in the finder. Uh, so go to home library and then the mail folder and just copy the whole thing over to the same location on your new Mac. And you should be totally good to go, including all your on my Mac uh, mailboxes. So so that's what I would do. And that's that's just going to get them there. And, uh, and that, that's my thought on it. Yeah. Moving hundreds of mailboxes to IMAP sounds like a, a dangerous process to me. Uh, maybe it would work. I don't know. John, you have any thoughts on this? I absolutely do because I went through this recently as uh-huh. some, uh, recall, well, I, when I migrated over from pop to IMAP, of course I wanted to bring over the old stuff because uh, especially with pop, certain things are stored in the on my Mac folder because they are not stored on the <coughs> IMAP servers normally. So, um, but what I ran into, and I think, uh, so I have a few suggestions here. So yes, the, the in, in answer to the question is the way I'm doing it, a bad idea. My experience is yes, in that you don't want to try to move too much at once. And the reason I say this, cause here's what I ran into. So I would take, so at first I try I tried the same thing. I would just drag a whole bunch of mailboxes, drag them over to the the IMAP server or you know the the folder in MailApp and just sit there and and watch the progress. And how sure. do you do that? Of course, well you go in the window menu and uh, you look in the activity window and that should show you the individual uh, mailbox copy operations. There are also some other things happening like there's creation of caches and and things like that. But what would happen is a lot of times I. I don't know if I'd always get an error, but sometimes it would just abruptly stop copying. And I would look at the source folder and the destination, and I was expecting it to indicate the same number of messages, which is up in the title bar, and it wasn't. And I'm like, okay, what happened here? And what happened is that I had, because the mail was so old and crusty and from pop, apparently I had some malformed mail messages. And what happens is that if you try to copy something that's missing a key field or if the structure is somehow damaged, then the copy will give up. Then what I had to do was look at the source, look at the destination and figure out where it stopped. And typically it stopped at the corrupted email message. At that point, then I would start at the one after that and try to continue the copy. So if anything, what I'd suggest is you may want to do it in small chunks, whether it be, you know, a hundred or 500 or however many messages, however you want to organize it, whether it be by date or whatever logic makes sense to you and uh, do it in, in little bits. You may also want to try to do, um, I get, I think you can do this on the, on my Mac mailboxes, try to do a, a rebuild and maybe able to clear up some of that damage. Actually, that's true. You can rebuild the mailboxes on my Mac. It rebuilds them from disk and it rebuilds the indexes. But yeah, that actually that could do it. Yeah. So um, so what, what he's proposing, you, you should be able to do it. But uh, I found that mail and I don't know if it's IMAP or mail app uh, it deals with errors poorly and that it just kind of gives up and doesn't really give you much information to go on and that you have to look at the look at the two folders to figure out where it gave up and then try to try to pick it up from there. Right, right, right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's frustrating. So if you do want to move them over, uh, it sounds like rebuilds, uh, rebuilds all around. I would back up before you do these rebuilds and, and you can back up in a variety of ways, including just making a full copy of that library mail folder or home library mail folder. But, uh, 
but that might, yeah, that might do it. Awesome. And yes, John, we can hear your, uh, your air conditioner keeping you, keeping you comfortable, but we'll, we'll see if we can't build a, an audio filter for the summer to, to tune that out for you. Uh, all right. Moving on to Paul. Paul writes, I've been using iPhoto and mobile me for a long time. Most of my albums ordered collections of photos chosen carefully from events are mobile me albums. There are over a hundred. I put a lot of work into selecting and ordering the photos that make up these albums. It appears that all this work will be lost while the photos still exist elsewhere in my iPhoto library. The ordering and selection thinking work slash effort only exists in the mobile me albums. And these are going away. There appears to be no way to turn the mobile me albums into regular iPhoto albums, which will survive the demise of mobile me later this month. This violates my first law of computing, which is that work once done by a user should never be deliberately forced to be lost. It's hard not to be angry at Apple slash iPhoto. I adopted a workflow they recommended and now they will lose. Now I will lose many hours of work and the perspective that I had at the time I made the slideshow. I don't even see an easy way to recreate the albums or even quickly find the photos that make them. Can you help? And before we could even help, Paul solved his own problem. At least one way. He writes, well, I haven't found a great answer. I found a workaround. Double click the mobile me album in iPhoto to open it. Select the photos in the album. All of them go to file and choose new album. With this, a new album is created under the albums category in the iPhoto sidebar, and it contains all the pictures in the mobile me album uh, and actually just references to them as all albums do. Uh, number four, rename the album. He says this works and there are a couple of caveats. Number one, obviously, you have to do this for each album. Number two, if the album contains movies, this doesn't work straightforward for some reason. Uh, number three, mobile me movies are weird. I have movies that show up in the photo section, some in the movie section. You only see the movies section, in the mobile me gallery webpage, not in iPhoto. But uh, but thanks for sharing that, Paul. That's uh, obviously timely and handy for anyone that that may not have realized that uh, the mobile me demise meant that those things that live on your Mac in iPhoto uh, will likely go away, too. Any thoughts on this one, John? Well, one thought is, um, <laughs> I mean, we only have like nine days. Before I know. They're going to shut this whole thing down. So uh, I was surprised to see a, you know, a question about this at this later date. And that, uh, well, it's not. I, I, frankly, I was happy to have the solution. I bet there's a lot of people that don't realize that mobile me galleries uh, that live not just on mobile me, but on your Mac and iPhoto are going away. Yes. And I, I think they hinted at this and that we've we've gotten warning emails kind of. Say, and, and actually, Dave, I found an article. So there actually is a uh, support article, HT4702, called Mobile Me, How to Save Your Mobile Me Gallery Photos and Movies. And we'll, of course, link to that because that describes the, the procedure that I think was uh, Paul kind of stumbled across. The, the only fish shake I, I would say, and I agree with him here, is that mobile me galleries are their own galleries in that they're not really reproducible or exportable. So, so I can understand his frustration. And to me, yeah, that, that is kind of a weird, I think when they implemented mobile me, they never figured that, you know, it was going to die. Whoever designed it never thought that you would need this gallery structure because I even tried this. I never really did. Or, or you know, my approach was different in that I've always grouped things in albums and then exported them 
using the export feature. Uh, so, so part of it is kind of thinking about how how to organize your stuff within uh, Apple's app or any app for that matter. And because I already had my stuff in, in albums, it was a pretty natural matter. transition to go to Flickr. And that basically I had albums that I exported to MobileMe and I just you know clicked on them and said, OK, well, export that to Flickr instead. And, and because there was no uh, because it was in stored in the in the the format that the program understood there was no chance of losing it right so another thing is i think okay well i think it's just it's a general caution because i've also run into people as well that rely on features that are unique to like Flickr is another one like for example Flickr pro if you start doing stuff with Flickr pro and then all of a sudden you unpro and that you you don't pay them anymore you may lose work that you've done and I think this is a similar situation is mm. that you're losing work that you've done, not because you're not paying them, but because they're shutting down the service. So, sure. uh, so I guess a general, you know, it's easy to say in hindsight now, but a general strategy is you may not rely on features uh, outside of the application uh, for data that can't be reproduced. The, the other thing, Dave, is that I found this and I'm wondering if somebody's going to step up to the plate here and that this data is stored. And you may really? be shocked. Yes, it is because I did this. So, so I what I did to uh, to experiment here is I created a MobileMe gallery from some photos in iPhoto, and I did it with disjoint events, which is another way you can store stuff in uh, iPhoto. Okay, other than albums, and I created one, and I gave it a name, and then I'm like, well, you know, I wonder if I can find this. So where I looked was. So if you go in your pictures folder, you're going to see something called iPhoto Library, and as most people know, but if you don't, that's actually a folder or a package. And within that package, there's a file called albumdata.xml. Ah. And within that file was actually data referring to the, the, the MobileMe gallery that I just created. And it's all XML keys. So, you know, album ID, album name. And, and so what I did is I opened it up with a BB edit, though you could open it up with, the, you know, any program that understands XML. And sure. then I searched for the, what I named it, and it was under the album name tag. And then following that, it had something called key list. And then that was a number. Now, I'm, uh, I didn't dig too deep here, but it was a number. And there were six of them. And that corresponded to the six photos that I put in this mobile meet gallery. Now, the thing I couldn't find, and I'm, uh, that's why I'm saying, is that maybe someone can come up with a day to do this. If I could figure a way to map this number, and it's just a single number, like 159. Mm-hmm. So I think that's like photo ID 159. I, I, I didn't dig deep enough to find out where that lives. Sure. And then it says album type published instead of, I guess, local. And, and a few other pieces of data, and it actually had the URL of the gallery uh, on the web buried in that structure as well. So I'm thinking some clever person, uh, I'll dig a little bit more. Someone may have come up with a way to parse this because when I can see in this data file, all the data that you need to recreate the album is stored within the iPhoto library package. That makes sense. So, yeah. so that's kind of geeking out there. So, so they store it, but uh, I haven't yet figured a way to beat that data out of iPhoto. <laughs> <laughs> to make it useful. It'd be really nice if they had a tool to do that. And uh, and technically it looks to be possible. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep digging. Right. Right. Cool. Awesome. Uh, all right. Let's go to David and uh, let's see what he has to say. Oh, so it's not going to play the right way. Hey guys, this is Dave. I'm uh, still working on a project of trying to back up my 
iCal calendar. I, I don't trust Time Machine, so I've been working on something that will do a nightly export of my um, my, my iCal calendar so that, in my case, I want to um, dump it into my Dropbox, but where, you know, wherever it can go. Previously, I was looking for a, an application that would do that, and, and I haven't found one yet. I found a script, though, that you can put into your iCal calendar that nightly um, you can you can trigger it to run, and presumably this um, this takes the information and backs it up. My problem is that every night it seems to call this program, which is called iCal Backup, and um, created by John Chafee, BusyMac, yep. um, and instead of running it, it just pulls up the editor. Um, so in the morning, I have an editor screen up, and I can push the green run button, and then it runs and does the backup, but it doesn't help it automatically do it every night. So um, my question in this case is, how, and I've, I've looked through the preferences to see if I can find a way to just say, make the stupid thing run, and, and I haven't found that. So I'm trying to figure out how to, what setting I need to, to, to set someplace to just simply make the script run rather than bring it up as an editor. Or if you guys have found an application that just does the whole thing magically, that would be even better. So uh, here's where you cut me off. Name is Dave. All right. Uh, yeah, okay. So uh, AppleScript is definitely the way I was thinking when uh, you know you first posed your question. So I think doing it via AppleScript is great. And if somebody else has already written this AppleScript, even better. Uh, but AppleScript is um, there. Well, what's happening is you have an editable script file that is saved. And all iCal does is it essentially opens up this file. Uh, now, if you had iCal open up a word file, it would open up in word in the editor mode. And the same thing is happening with AppleScript. Uh, it's opening up in the AppleScript editor. What you need to do is you need to open that script in AppleScript editor and save it as a uh, as a script or actually I would save it as an application. Uh, so you go open it up in the AppleScript editor and uh, go to file and choose save as and then for file format, choose application. This will save it so that when it is effectively double clicked or opened in any way, it will run as an app and perform its actions as opposed to opening in the script editor and just allowing you to edit it. So that I think that's the trick that, that you're missing here. And you probably, you know, a lot of Apple scripts are distributed by, uh, by people just posting the script code. Uh, so you can copy and paste it into the script editor. The nice part about this is there's nothing hidden there. You can, if you choose to, you know, you can go through line by line and see what the script is doing and making sure it's not emailing your password database off to, you know, Bangladesh or something. Uh, and that's a good thing. But but then you need to take this extra step and save it as an application so that it actually runs when you double click it. You could, of course, run it from within the Apple script editor by clicking the little green run button. But uh, but when you want to automate something, uh, obviously, you don't want to have to click. So I think that's going to be your magic answer. And uh, hopefully that's that. John, any thoughts? Always. All right. <laughs> Most of which are rated G. Good. 
for general for geek or general audiences whatever you choose here uh the other thing i I think with an apple script or maybe even automator so of course in ical if you go to the file menu um i think this will probably be the most appropriate but there are two export options and and the one that caught my eye here is ical archive so if you can somehow script that to happen when you'd like it to um yeah, that, I think is an, another solution. There's also a regular. I think there, there there's two. There's export and iCal archive. I think iCal archive is is the whole ball of wax. There's also export, which I think that only exports a specific calendar. Oh, so. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. And and you know the 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 other thing to bear in mind is that if you want to if you wanted to create a script yourself, and I don't know what John Chafee's script does, I haven't looked at it, but uh, but if you wanted to create a script yourself. Uh, or use some third-party backup program. Uh, all you need to do is, and, and you want to just target your your iCal calendars. All you need to do is target your home library calendars folder. And if you back that up, that does have all of your data. It's not all going to be in the formats that make it necessarily easy to import into other things. But that is where that data is stored, and you can you could you know. If if something were to happen uh, and you needed to use this data, you just put it back in that location, and uh, and then iCal should uh, should in theory read it, and and you'd be good to go. So that's the that's the thought process there. Are we ready to move on here, Mister Braun? I think I'm with you because yeah, I, ju- I just looked here and I compared the size of the calendars folder and the iCal backup file, and it looks like they're the same. So I think that's really what it's doing. It's glomming yeah. all that data together in a single file. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, you could do this with a shell script. You could just like uh, gzip that whole folder, you know, tar and and gzip it, um, it, which is you know another way of just creating an archive and putting it somewhere. So it depends on uh, depends on your your comfort level with all of that stuff and which option is more appealing to you. But uh, but good that you want to do backups and good also that you don't want to trust Time Machine. You know, Time Machine's quirky. It's good. It's way better than what we had before in that there was no built into the OS automated backup software that actually worked well. We had the the whatever it was, the. The dot Mac uh, junk. I guess it was the backup app. It was fine, but you know it wasn't great. So I mean, Time Machine is 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 great from that standpoint, but restoring from it is wonky. It's always corrupting. I don't know. Don't get me started. Um, we can go on to JP though. I think that's probably a good idea, don't you, John? Mm-hmm. JP asks. Is there any way using Dropbox or some other method that I can sync my stickies database between two of my computers? I'd love to be able to open both the laptop and the Mac Pro and see my usual sticky notes right in front of me on the desktop. Uh, I found one thing called a sticky sync, but, you know, I will note it's it's made by somebody named John Stovall. Uh he has a web.me.com address, and that is where this software is hosted. So, so <laughs> I noticed it, that, too. So it, that brings up two concerns. Number one, if you want this, go get it, because it's going to go away. Um, and if you uh, – but, but also, I, I, I am not sure how his sticky sync software works. If it's using MobileMe to sync, well, then that's not going to work. So, uh, but I don't think it is. I think he's I – I don't, actually, I don't know how he's doing it. 
So I, I looked at the screw. Well, it, it claims to be able to use multiple okay uh, mechanisms here, including from what I recall. Look, so I looked at it quickly, and uh, it, it seems to be able to use Dropbox. I, I think what he's doing is he's creating what a symbolic link. I think to an external. F- I think underneath the covers, that's the gist of what it's doing. Oh well, then that's a, that. That's that's a good thing. That's great, and it's available for free. So go get it. You know, it's not going to hurt. I don't. I hope not. Backup first. Then it definitely won't hurt. Yeah, because where it is, so so you may be asking yourself, or even if you're not, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> uh, but it's in your home folder, library, stickies database is the name of the file that contains this. Okay. And actually, every now and then what I do on occasion, because I, uh, I I use stickies for things I probably shouldn't. I'm I'm weaning myself off of it. But uh, but yeah, it's called stickies database, and, and I back up that file every now and then, or just, just make a copy of it, sure. just in case. I mean, I, yes, I, I used to be a horrible person and store all my passwords in there. Now, of course, I'm moving over to uh, LastPass, and every time I add something to the LastPass database, I'll remove it from the sticky that has all my usernames and passwords. And no, they're not all the same. I know better than that. But That's good. <laughs> but that list is getting smaller, because that's, that's probably not a good place. I don't know. It seemed it, to work out for you for a long time. Well, it did. You know, if I, yeah, actually, if I had to do it again, uh, so this is kind of an offbeat thing. But uh, so I guess the, the only problem with stickies is it's not terribly secure. Not, actually not is, terribly. And I'll translate that for you. It is so insecure. It's laughable. But go ahead. Yeah, that's. Well, right. not if you log into my user account, if you get into someone's user account or get to the, the file we just mentioned, then, yeah, you got the stickies. Right. Um, but. Oddly enough, within keychain access, there's something called secure notes. Now, I don't know. Uh, uh, the only reason I can imagine they put it in there is the keychain access stores keys, encryption keys or, or passwords. Right. And I guess they figure, well, yeah, why not put a secure note feature in keychain access? And well, it, that's pretty much what it is. You, you can create a note give it a name and give it a password. And unless you provide the password, you're not going to see the contents of that note. Right. I don't know why they couldn't have integrated it with stickies. Cause it's basically what it's doing is creating a secure version of a, of a sticky. Hey, in my you know, book. while, while we're talking and totally uh, tangential to, to everything, um, I, I did want to share something that I learned recently. Uh, file vault two uh, obviously is whole Apple's whole disk encryption and it works really, really well. It's, you know, you know, you basically don't even notice that it's running. It barely slows down your Mac at all, if at all. Uh, during the process, though, it you are presented with a randomly generated private key uh, that that is yours and yours alone. And you can either store this on your own or you can also choose to store it with Apple. Now, uh, during that process, I chose not to store mine with Apple because I figured, well, what's the point of having a private key that someone else has access to, right? If you know, and, and, and presumably Apple's going to be responsible about that, but Hey, somebody else has access to it. Many things are possible when that happens. So I chose not to store mine with them, but what I learned is something very interesting. Um, Apple does not store that key uh, in the, in the clear. In fact, they don't store it in any way that they could ever get at it what they do is when they when you store your key with them you actually it gets encrypted locally using what they call the bankers questions there's those three questions that you know they ask mother's maiden name and favorite dog and this that and the other thing 
And it's actually encrypted with your answers to those questions. And then it is stored with Apple. So what that means is that even if Apple wants to, to get at your private key, they need to know the answers to all three of your, your bankers questions, and then it can decrypt that key and, and then they could get at your data. So that made me feel a lot safer about it and, and actually makes me feel comfortable storing that key with Apple. But I had no idea that this was how it worked. So I, I wanted to share that with, uh, with you folks. So there you go. I share. I like it when you share. It's good. You want to tell us about uh, Tim, Tim number one and then, and then Tim number two? Are, are we ready? Why for not? That? All right. I'm ready. It's right in front of me. I'm, I'm getting better about prepping stuff here. Awesome. So. Tim writes, John and Dave, in your recent episode, Dave was in San Francisco and John was back in Connecticut. And Dave mentioned that John should check his bandwidth because he was starting to sound Skypey. <laughs> well, you were. <laughs> or what we mean by that is that, that the Skype bandwidth uh, started breaking down and my voice quality went down and it was detectable. And John replied he was at 14 or something. And basically I knew that because there's a technical call info window in Skype that shows your, uh, I guess, audio bandwidth. It shows your audio, audio bit rate. Is or bit rate, which yeah. I think is, is optimally it should be 2,400. 24,000. 24,000. Yep. Well, 2,400. Or yeah, 24,000. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if, if, if something happens, and I think it was actually my fault, I had some background things that were chewing bandwidth. I think sugar sink and, and crash plan and all that. So once I turned those off, it got better. But to continue with the question, what do you use to monitor your bandwidth? Well, I just answered that for Skype. Is that Skype has something that can give you a hint. Um, he, and he says, I have a cable modem at home with pretty good connection of that. I have a router that has a hardware to my Apple TV first gen, my laptop, a PC with an airport extreme dual band. We also have a Wii using wireless for Netflix and two iPads and two iPhones using the wireless. The extreme is set up to have both five gigahertz and normal 802.11n. I believe I have the iPhones and iPad using the five gigahertz band and the Wii using the N band. Is there some program? So here's the meat. Is there some program I can use to see what everything is using as far as bandwidth? Um, and I think the answer individually is no, but let's continue here because I have a few goodies to, to, to share with you. My laptop tends to hang a lot when the kids are watching Netflix or vice versa. Is there a better way to distribute the wireless versus wired usage? Ooh, okay. I didn't really address that question, but we could try. I guess what I would have to do is somehow monitor the pipe going out via my cable modem and also maybe also the internal network with wired versus wireless. Any suggestions? Um... And I'd say, yes, I have not one, not two, but three suggestions, Dave. Go. All right. So here we go. So as far as monitoring bandwidth, yes, there are ways you can do this. So um, the first one, and, and I think two of these are on the router level. Uh, because you got to differentiate here. Do you want to monitor the bandwidth going into or out of your router or your cable modem? I, I would say the router. Or do you want to monitor what individual devices are doing? And there's certainly tools to do all of that. Now, the thing that I found, and it still works, it's been around for quite a long time, and, and I did a, a Monday's Mac gadget on it, and I'll fire it up every now and then, but it's called SNMP Status at kunysch.de. So I guess that's in Germany. And it's a teeny little thing that goes in your menu bar. But what happens is when you click on it, it asks, um, so it knows where your router is, but then it asks which interface you would like to monitor. And it'll show you both live upload and download, but also cumulative if you bring down the, uh, the pref pane or the, uh, the menu bar item. 
The only trick is you got to figure out. Uh, so what they're doing, and and this uh, this may you may like this, Dave, but it uses the, the kind of obscure Unix names for the network interfaces. So what it'll bring up is six of them. I, when I fired it up on my uh, MacBook Pro, so it brought up GEC0, MV0, LO0, WLAN0, VLAN0, PPOE0, and Bridge0. And I think what I concluded that VLAN0 was, um, was the one that was monitoring bandwidth going into and out of the connection to the big wide world. So... Yeah, that one, that makes sense. Yep. So SNMP status is a tool that can show you both the live bandwidth going into or out of your router, assuming that it publishes these interfaces, which which the airport does, and uh, almost any modern router should. Um, and it can show a cumulative measure uh, when you click on it, so you can kind of determine that over time. Now, the second tool, which is a little more interesting, I haven't used it lately, but, um, uh, but I think it's something worth looking at, is called Surplus Meter. And it's from ScoobySoft, S-K-O-O-B-Y-S-O-F-T.com. Okay. And what it does is similar to SNMP status, but I think it does it in a nicer way in that you tell it, okay, here's my, and, and this is especially for locales, not so much in the U.S., I think, though, though it sounds like it's coming to us too. But uh, in some areas, you're told, hey, you know, that this is your amount of bandwidth or amount of data that you can transfer per time period. And if you exceed that, we're either going to shut you down or, or, you know, nail you with uh, additional fees here. So surplus meter, it monitors this again, similar to SNMP status. So I guess it's smart enough or you tell it, you're like, Oh, okay, I have an airport or I have a hardwired router or whatever. And it'll, it'll start monitoring the amount of bandwidth going up and down. Huh? And will alert you, and then you punch in some of the numbers, like, okay, I know my you know, weekly or monthly or whatever bandwidth based on what my provider told me is this, and it'll start warning you. Okay, so it's still and, using SNMP, right? Right, so it's, okay. looking, so it's looking at the macro level, you know, it's yeah. looking at the high level. It, right. It's not telling you which apps are doing what. Well, and, and it's, uh, the other thing with SNMP is that um, it's getting a, a slice in time um, bit of, uh, of information. And, you know, typically you're going to have SNMP update every potentially every minute or maybe every five minutes or every 10 minutes, but it, it's not very good at telling you right now. I want to see exactly what's going on even across my whole network. It, it, it in, in terms of, you know, what rates am I, am I pushing? Like, like in, in your example, right. Where I said, check your, your bandwidth SNMP would not have been overly helpful with that. Unless you had something that was running for more than a minute or two that was, you know, constantly soaking your bandwidth. So in that case, it might help because you might be able to see, oh, yeah, look at that. My SNMP graphs. It's, it's basically showing more about the past and it could be the very, very recent past, but it's not showing active current what's happening, at, you know, in real time. And so that, right. that so that's important to note that SNMP is not that real time thing in that sense, but, but, but it, but it works. And for many routers, it's the best you're going to get. So. Well, I think what happens then is that typically, and I think both these programs, what happens is that the software that retrieves the data then starts aggregating it and trying to be smart about it. Yeah. I don't know if it's necessarily maintained in the device as far, or maybe it is as far as, you know, how much data have I transferred since you reset me or since this point in time? Exactly. That's right. So I think the, yeah. I think the apps are doing that. Um, now the third thing I'll mention, then I'll hand it to you because I know you got some goodies as well, Dave, yep. but 
the utility that I like. Uh, so the first one I mentioned here, free. This one I believe you have to pay for after a certain uh, trial period. But Rubbernet. Ah, uh, yep. And Rubbernet, I think, is the bee's knees for monitoring. It answers the question: What apps on my Mac? And I think it's specific to the Mac. Uh, what apps on my Mac are consuming bandwidth? And it, it's an activity monitor like window, but the bonus is that in addition to getting a list of all the processes you're running, there happens to be a couple extra columns that are showing the up and downstream bandwidth being consumed by them. So, uh, and it also has a mode where you can actually uh, reach out and look at other machines, which I think is kind of cool. So if you want to see if the kids are hogging the bandwidth, uh, playing games or whatever the heck they're doing, yeah. then this would be a nice uh, uh, program to uh, do that. So Rubbernet. Is is the one that I'm gonna gonna vote for for uh, for just figuring out what 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 apps are hogging the bandwidth? <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's the idea, right? Is is you want to figure that out? So that's good. Um, so I you know iStat menus is actually the kind of the one that that is the go to now that only shows you aggregate bandwidth of all the usage on your given Mac, so it's not network wide, but knowing. For me, knowing that you have basically only two, well, only two Macs on your network. Now you have various iDevices, but I was sort of assuming at the time that your iDevices weren't going to be chewing up all of your bandwidth, especially your upstream bandwidth, which is what tends to cause more of these problems uh, than than a downstream issue. Uh, you know, looking quickly at both of your Macs and, and checking iStat menus is going to tell you real quick. Yep, this is. You know, this machine is blasting a, a, a bunch of stuff up. So um, that that's number one. Number two, some routers will support uh, showing you more of their stats internally. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the DDWRT firmware, but there are routers out there that have factory firmware that has uh, this data, you know, in it as well. And it's awesome because I get real time graphs in in my uh, from my router showing bandwidth usage on the WAN port, on the LAN port and on the wireless segments. So I can really see what's going on. And it it's it's you know, it, it immediately shows me it's updated. I think it's maybe every second. So you can get a real picture of, of what's happening. And and if you see something spiking out, you, you know, you can you can look at a graph if it's flat. And it's up at your, you know, if you know you have a four megabit upstream or whatever it is and you see it sitting at four, well, you know that you've soaked up your upstream and that's going to start causing problems for uh, other apps, including especially real-time apps like Skype. So um, so there you go. And you can get DDWRT uh, from Buffalo on some of their routers. So that that's the that's the beauty of what Buffalo has done, because you don't for everybody else's routers and you want to install DDWRT on. You have to void your warranty and, and jump through all these crazy hoops, holding your mouth just right and standing on one toe and just getting the firmware on there. But you can get it right from the factory from those guys. So it's his good stuff. Did we do enough on that one? I think we did more than enough. Can you tell I'm uh, enjoying my caffeinated beverage this morning? <laughs> this should be uh, illegal. I am too. This should be illegal. People, this is a, I don't do caffeine on a regular basis. You know, I know a lot of people do it. Um, probably most people do it every day in the morning. This is insane. I mean, it, this, this should be illegal. 
but anyway, it's why not. because it gets you so cranked up. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, I got to say, you may want to consider a, 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 a what are they called? A Irish cut. You may want to consider a, a combating it with a, a depressant to kind of kind of level things out. Right. That's what I need. Yeah. Wait, if I'm going to do that, why wouldn't I just not have caffeine? Well, you get the best of both worlds. <laughs> okay. I, I, I did it this morning only because uh, usually I do like mint tea or whatever, but this cough that I brought back from WWDC um, kind of has me with a headache and all that stuff. And so caffeine is good for when I have a cold. It, it sort of helps me mask it and just blast through. But, I think uh, caffeine is, is it a vasoconstrictor? It's I'm a vasoconstrictor, yeah. Because I think they put it in aspirin and stuff, I think, to, to enhance the effects of the, uh, the analgesic or whatever, the painkillers. So. Analgesic, that's right. Yeah. Analgesic. Well, ca- caffeine in and of itself is an analgesic. Oh, all right. Yeah. So, um, uh, but I, I, I go, I have both, uh, or, well, it's a dual thing. It was a gift from my parents, but it was a, actually a coffee maker. And then when you really want to get extreme, it's a, I also have an espresso maker. So when I want a real, you know, good shot, <laughs> concentrated shot of caffeine goodness. Yeah, that's great. I, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. You have one, don't you? Or no, you have a Keurig or, or something. Like uh, we, have a, we have a Tassimo, which has a pump in it. Oh, so. But it's great because Lisa really is the only one that drinks coffee regularly here. So uh, the Tassimo is awesome for one person, you know, for, for a Doesn't one Doesn't it have the grinder? Drinker. Don't you put the beans in and it grinds them on the spot or something? No, that's like the $3,000 oh. Williams and Sonoma thing. Oh. Uh, oh. Yeah, they're really nice. Uh, one of our relatives has one uh, whenever we stay with them. Uh, we thoroughly enjoy. I just enjoy watching it do its thing. I don't actually use it, but, you know, uh, it's 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 quite fascinating. But uh, but the Tassimo is good for for uh, for the one person. It's similar to Keurig. I mean, it's I know it's different. And I think technology wise, the Tassimo is actually better because it's got a pump in it. that The Keurig doesn't. So you can do things like steam milk and that sort of thing. But um, but whatever, you know, it's it's all basically the same. You're going to take Tim again. Oh, another Tim. Let's see. Let me get Tim number. Ah, Okay. I have an answer, but not the answer for this. So, hey, guys, I probably know the answer. Well, no, that's why. Well, then why'd you send, <laughs> no. why'd you send so us a another, question? I, can, it, it's true. I, I, know, I think I've said this before. I used to love it when I would pick up the phone, you know, from when I was running my Dave the Nerd uh, consulting business full force. And I'd pick up the phone. And I'd say, this is Dave. And the first thing somebody would say was, I'm sure this is going to be really, really quick, but I, I just have a problem and I need you to come out. <laughs> it's like, oh, OK, well, yeah. Sometimes people need validation or confirmation. Yeah, but it never was. I would ask him what I and I, I mean, I got yeah. to the point politely. I would ask what makes you think this is going to be quick. And I learned to do this because sometimes what they would think was going to be quick was going to be like a three hour long thing. And that costs them more money. And so I had to kind of set the expectation that you called me because you don't know. And that's OK. But that's you know, it just was it was it was necessary to make the billing part of the uh, transaction work better. We don't have to right. uh, we don't have to bill for these particular specific answers. So, right. I digress. So this question, this could get deep, depending on how, how deep we want to go down the rabbit hole here. But here's the rest. Here's the actual question. I had the console open, which I fully recommend to do unless you uh, are ADD and can't help. Because, uh, yeah, there's lots of stuff in the console. Especially if you click on all messages. I had the console open trying to diagnose some other issues, spinning beach balls, stuck programs, etc. And notice that every now and then I see disk zero S2 colon IO error. 
And then HFS underscore clone file colon cluster underscore read failed dash five. For most of the forms, it looks like the drive is going to die. Um, <laughs> I would tend to agree. I think IO error is the key here. I have an early 2009 MacBook Pro 17 inch. So it's not that old with a 320 gigabyte SATA drive. The question I have is, is disk zero S2, the Macintosh HD, the bootcamp partition or the recovery partition, or does it not really matter since it is all one drive? Well, I think it does matter, and I'll, I'll tell you a quick way, and then I'll, I'll, I'll hand it to you, Dave. Sure. I'll tell you a quick way to determine the, uh, the name of your main disk here, and that's to run your PAL disk utility. And it may yeah. not be immediately obvious here, but if you run disk utility, what you're going to see in the left-hand column, so first you're going to see at the very highest level uh, probably something that's like a descriptor for your drive. So like here, for example, I have the Momentus XT that I'm currently kicking the tires on, and it says 750.16 gigabyte ST7, the, you know, the model number. But then below it, it has the volume that I created, which I called originally Momentus XT Hybrid. But uh, I don't see anything in this window telling me what the name of it is. Well, here's how you do it, is you do the uh, command I, which uh, in most places will give you info on something, and then you get this pretty detailed info window. Um, and there's an item here, says disk identifier, disk 0s2. So, and then it gives you a whole slew of other pieces of information about the, the drive, which you may find interesting. Um, you know, the, the, the GUID or the UID, uh, but hey, something you may not know about this utility, and now you do, and it will tell you that disk name, but that I think, uh, Dave, you may want to explain what this cryptic stuff means, because I, 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 I've seen it before, but it, it may not be clear, especially the S part, what it means, so uh, uh, over to you. Yeah, so um, the, the, it, it's Unix addresses everything as a essentially a virtual device. So, and, and uh, I believe on Mac OS 10, uh, I'm just pulling from memory, but I'm, I'm 99% certain all of these things live in the slash dev folder. They aren't actual, and you can navigate there via the file system. And on first look, they look like just normal files, but they're not, they're virtualized devices. So you might have like dev USB one or dev whatever. And, and, and in this case, it's slash dev slash, um, disc zero or disc, whatever it is, S whatever. And, and what this is telling you is that it's giving you the disc number in order of, uh, the way that they were identified by the system since boot. Right. So, and, and we always start with zero. So, you know, disc zero is number number is the first one. Disc one is the second one, etc. And then, S is the partition on that disk. I believe, and, and this is a total like gut feeling guess. We're thinking the same thing. I think it's a slice of the yes. disk. Is that right? Okay. Uh, seeing as how that was buried in my head, I would, I would say that that is the origin of that is, is a slice of a disk. Right. So, so you're looking at the third slice. So if a disk zero, that's the first disk S two, that's the third slice because we always start with zero. So S zero would be the first slice, etc. And, uh, and that's normal because you've got, um, you know, various things. You've got, you know, the, the, the boot record and this, that, and the other thing. If you are, if, if you want to take a look at this, it, it can be very interesting because um, 
your with file vault there the disk is like wrapped in all this other stuff so there's tons and tons of partitions out there that that sort of create this container um i think it's very interesting but uh but that's that's where you uh that's what that means right i found another uh, yeah i found another command maybe you know the unix command but i did find another one that in uh, in a roundabout way tells you the name of your main disk okay uh, and that's df Oh, yeah. Which I think is disk free. So that will show you not only the name of the file systems that you have mounted, or at least the visible ones, but the amount of uh, used and uh, free space. That's right. I was and trying if, to figure out what wanted, terminal command if, could show me the list of all disk devices. And I. I it, isn't I, it disk util? Oh, really? I think so. I think it's disk util list. Disk oh, Util space a list. Line version of that. Huh. Yeah. Look at you. Oh, you're right. Look at that. Ladies and gentlemen, Dave Hamilton. <laughs> Thanks very much. Hey, hey, but I did want to go back to the DF command because DF all by itself is sort of useless unless you want to think about your disks in terms of 512K blocks. Um, if you do a DF, DF with a special switch and on the command line, switches are prefaced by the uh, minus key or the dash key. So you do DF space dash H and that is for human readable. Uh, it will show you the size of your disk, the use, the availability and all of that in uh, what are called human readable forms. So uh, K or gigabytes or megabytes, depending on uh, what's appropriate for that disk. You like that, Mr. Braun? Yeah, look at that disutil space list. So that actually shows, yeah, so it shows, well, I guess we'll call the slices, it shows 0, 1, and 2. Yep. 0 being the partition table, 1 being EFI. So I guess, is that the recovery? Oh, I bet partition? that, of course it is. That's right. Because it shows the size of it is 209 megabytes. I've got the same thing. That's right. Yeah. Well, no, because wait a minute. I have an EFI partition on my on my Snow Leopard machine, so that's not a recovery partition at Ooh. all. Well, no, that's the extensible, uh, yeah, extensible, the, mm -hmm. hmm. let me, uh, let me look at, are you looking at a lion machine? Uh, snow leopard. Okay. So we're both looking at snow leopard machines. So if I do disc util list on a lion machine, so it's actually a more full featured on a lion machine because it will show you, well, it's showing me every disc, but of course I only have one disc on this one, but, uh, but yeah, so I have on my lion machine, this is very interesting. Um, What's odd is I don't see my boot drive. Oh, yeah, I do. Never mind. Never mind. Sorry. Uh, I see the partition zero is uh, the GUID partition scheme. Partition one is the EFI. Partition two is my Apple HFS boot volume. And then partition three is named Recovery HD, and it is a 650 megabyte uh, partition. So, so that is where that appears. Good okay, stuff. EFI is extens is the extensible firmware interface, which I guess is the uh, uh, the thing that came after BIO. So I guess it's data used by the low level of the system to uh, used by the bootloader. I think I'm just looking up here on Wikipedia. So it's a small block of data that I guess is is necessary for the machine to to boot. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. Yeah, because that appears on both of my drives that would be, in in theory, capable of holding bootable partitions. I, And this is where it gets interesting. I happen to have um, Adobe Flash Player. I don't know why. 
mounted on the, the disc image mounted on my machine, uh, my my lion machine. And that shows up as slash dev slash disc two. So it is totally logically addressable at, at some level. The system doesn't even know that one of these is a disk image. One of them is an SSD and one of them is a spinning drive at, at another level, at a deeper level. It obviously knows and it treats them differently. But in terms of how it presents these disks to the rest of the, the machine, it's just disk zero, disk one, disk two. And when I eject this, you know, disk two goes away and uh, and then I can mount another one and that'll become disk two. So very interesting stuff. Fun. If you know you're into that sort of thing. Speaking of how far into some things we are, uh, we are moving more slowly than I thought through this uh, through this show. And that's OK. You know what? Let's but let's jump down to uh, let's jump down to cool stuff found because that makes uh, things very, very fun. And uh, and on Twitter, Richie uh, shared with us something called AirPrint Activator. It is free. It is donationware. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And what it does is you run this on your Mac. So it is something that requires your Mac to be running in order for it to be uh, useful to you. But uh, but what it does is it shares all of your printers with your iOS devices. Um, And it's pretty much just a magic thing. Uh, You just kind of download it and run it and turn it on. And that's it. And it gets all of your printers and does it. And it's uh, it's donationware, So it's not free. It's free to try for sure. But uh, but obviously we encourage that you support them because that's a good thing. Did you try this one out, John? No, no, you could. It's not. I gonna, could. It's not going to. I don't think it's going to bite. So <laughs> that's AirPrint Activator. Uh, you know, along those lines, uh, we've talked uh I guess just after Macworld, we talked about the Lantronics X print server. Well, Lantronics just today is announcing a USB version, the home version of this print server. Now, the the first version of it, you attach to your network as just a device. You just plugged it in via Ethernet somewhere on your network. It went and found all your network printers and turned them into network printers, uh, air print printers visible from iOS. What it didn't do was what most people need, which is to take your USB inkjet printer or uh, or, you know, anything that would direct connect uh, to your Mac and do this. Uh, Well, now with the home version of this announced today, Lantronics does give you that ability. It's got a USB port built into it and you can plug a printer in and it shares it not only with your iOS devices, but with everything. So you kind of makes it into a network printer all by itself for everybody which is a beautiful thing. And hopefully we can get one of those and check it out. You're right, John. Uh, well, I'm going to actually, they're going to be at the event I'm going to tonight. Oh, so awesome. If they have a few, so if they have a few extras, uh, maybe I can uh, snag one. And uh, so at the very least, I think I'll, I'll be writing a, you know, a short article. Great. There's anything beyond what you just said, which is, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, expands the population of printers uh, that you can air print to. That's an awesome thing. Cool. Um, all right, moving on to Greg, Greg talked about something called cloud pull, which is, uh, it's available from golden Hill software. It is a uh, 25 bucks, 24 99. You save a, a penny. We'd like to give you prices with the, uh, with the cool stuff found because, uh, because we know that it costs you money. 
uh, cloud pool, uh, the, 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 the whole concept behind it is you've got all this data on Google, uh, Gmail, right? All your email, Google contacts, Google calendar, Google drive, which was your Google docs, uh, and Google reader. And it takes all of the data that's out there and backs it up, uh, onto your, uh, onto your Mac. So very, very handy idea, uh, you know, you're still storing your data with Google. And so you have to come to terms with that on your own. But uh, but at least this way, that's not the only place you're storing your your data. So that's a that's a good thing. Have you checked out Cloud Poll, John? No, All right. that'd be a good one. Do you do you use Google Docs or Google Drive or whatever it's called now? I, I dabbled with Google Drive. Okay. I mean, I got an account and, you know, they finally released an app. So it makes it visible in the finder and all that fun stuff. But mm-hmm. I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I think I'm at my limit here for <laughs> cloud services. The, the, the two that, you know, I'm, I'm happy with popping between the two are Dropbox, which you and I use for, for our show functions. Sure. And SugarSync, you know, I got Box.net or Box.com, though they're kind of limited, at least the free version. I got the Google Drive. I think I got the Amazon Cloud Drive. I got Pogo Plug. Oh, gosh. I mean, so many of them. Too many. You know, and I signed up for all of them. Well, the, the, some of them, the thing is, they're limited unless you pay them money. And there's just so many that one person needs. I mean, right. at the very least, you know, what I use a lot of them for is, is uh, so I use at least two because, as you know, we, we've said in the past and we'll say again, never have a single point of failure. So a lot of pieces of data, in addition to being backed up, not only to my time machine or time capsule. Right. Or actually, not the time capsule, the Drobo now. So, you know, I, I don't use the drive in my time capsule anymore. Isn't really for anything probably well, smart because it's gonna die well once the, well, once the dr- you know and i should actually yank it and see see what to do with it but yeah i think it's just sitting there not doing anything but yeah once once i was able to partition the, the drobo to act as a time machine i didn't really use the time capsule for that feature anymore it still appears as a shared disk and i suppose i could use it for that but right um yeah, so so yeah, I don't think I, I've tried them all, and I, I settled on the ones that you know I think I think are the 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 best ones for my needs. So Google Docs, which is now called Google Drive, is is actually a little bit a little bit different than than the other ones, and, and we use it quite extensively. And I, I think actually you even used it when uh, um, internally here at, at TMO. It's a yeah. great way to have. That yeah, was nice. It's a great way to have documents shared editable on the web that everybody can see collaborative documents like schedules. Um, you know, we just did the, the WWDC interviews and we had, you know, people submit via a form that was a Google docs thing. And it went right into a spreadsheet that we could then all see online. We do the same for our Macworld um, and stuff and everybody can just submit to it. And it, it's a nice place to store uh, collaborative documents and you can edit right on the web. It, you can do spreadsheets and, and word processing and all of that stuff. And it works really, really well, actually. So, so for that, I, I use it, but I don't use it to store other things. I just kind of use it for, for that main, main purpose. So, all right. Uh, Jeremy says, uh, during episode 402, you guys talked about iCal and being able to enter events contextually. Dave brought up Fantastical as a menu bar app that helps you do that. I wanted to let you know about Remind Me Later. That is another menu bar app that does this. I used to use it before I stopped using iCal. When you launch it, you just enter information in a single field. The example they give is buy groceries at 4 p.m. tomorrow, and it enters it into iCal. 
Preferences let you change what calendar you add events to, the default length, the alarm type, alarm sound, if there should be a reminder, and how many minutes before the event the alarm goes off. It's in the Mac App Store, but you can also download it for free from their website. And of course, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, I think it's free in the App Store, too. Uh, and, uh, and it's a good thing. Now, Fantastical actually will also work with BusyCal. I don't know if that's the case with, um, with remind me later. I don't think it is, which is too bad because it's, as he said, free. So that's a good thing. So thanks for sharing that, Jeremy. Did you ever check out Fantastical or, or this one? The, the remind me later. No, of course not. That's right. I'm going to stop asking that question. Yeah, stop. No. That <laughs> uh, How about if I've used it? I'll I'll, I'll pipe up. <laughs> all right, let's uh, let's jump to this one by Robin because it's sort of timely with with the uh, the well the whole network monitoring segment that we did. Uh, Robin writes: If you run an Apple Time capsule or any airport device, there is a brilliant little solution for seeing what they are doing and how they are performing. The product is called iNet, and it is available through the App Store. Uh, it's five ninety nine, and it's available for both the Mac and for iOS. Uh, not only does it show you all the devices on your network and the details of them, ports open, etc., but it can, on airport devices, show the throughput of the various interfaces, which wireless devices are connected, etc. There's only one catch, which is you need to enable SNMP on your devices, and this is no longer available through the latest version of the airport utility, but you can download the 5.6 family of airport utility, which does allow you to turn it on. And then you can keep both versions of airport utility around and manage as you please. So it's great to see how hard or not your airport devices are working. Yeah, it does far more than that. It, it really digs in. It's a fun little app. I've had iNet for a while. I think we've talked about it on the show, but maybe we haven't. And, um, and I wanted to make sure that we did. So, so that's that. Anything, uh, anything else you want to add today, Mr. Braun? Before we, uh, before we, move uh, just on. a little sideline here. Go. So, um, so my pal uh, Melissa, aka the uh, the Mac Mommy, was out to visit, or she has family in Connecticut, and she came over. We uh, hung out, took some pictures, and also did a little geeking out. And one thing we did was upgrade the RAM in her machine, and her machine apparently is the first macbook pro to come after ours dave so it's the first unibody you, you one. say ours like i still use a macbook pro but, but keep oh going. you don't okay the last macbook pro that you had which was the uh, or, uh oh i'm sorry so you and i had the early 2008 then i think the late 2008 was the first unibody and then she had i think the mid 2009 okay so decided to upgrade the ram yeah so um and I ran across this, and maybe you have as well, or, or maybe you haven't, but I did on this. So, you know, we popped the machine open, you know, the hard drive, the RAM, and the battery were, were uh, readily uh, visible. And I was thinking, you know what, maybe we should pop the battery out just in case. Uh, and then I look at the battery, and I'm like, oh, man. And there were like these screws with five, it almost looked like a Torx, but not quite. Sure. So, you know, I got my Torx bits. I tried those. They didn't fit. Then I tried, you know, I tried a few others. And it almost looked like a pentalobe and that they had five uh, uh, spokes, if you will. But they weren't rounded like a pentalobe. I would call this like pentalobe junior. But apparently here's what these are called. So I did have the right bit for this. Now, the thing is, iFixit recommends that you disconnect the battery connector. They, they don't say it's required. And because the machine was powered down, I felt like what we did was safe. And, okay. you know, we... Put the RAM, it took out the old RAM, put in the new RAM. The, the machine was definitely powered down and not connected to the adapter. So I, I felt confident. Sure. Fairly confident. 
at least until we hit the power button. <laughs> but no, we did it fine. She went from four gigs to eight gigs. And it was once I heard the chime, I was like, OK, you're right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And and again, I fix it says it's optional. But here's what this is called. It's called a tri wing screw. And actually, the kit that I had, so this is kind of a plug for iFixit, they, they, uh, I think at one of the shows we were at, the, we ran into the, the, the founder, and he was like, hey, you want a you know, really cool screwdriver kit? And it's like a kit with every bit in existence. And so oddly enough, even though this screw has five uh, spokes, the bit used to open it up is called a tri-wing. Or it's a tri-wing Y1 screwdriver. So I actually had the bit in my kit, but it didn't occur to me that a bit with three spokes on it was supposed to fit into a screw with five it's just kind of aggravating it just aggravates me in general how apple keeps doing wacky stuff here i mean you know with different i'd never seen this screw before and sure and again i didn't realize that i had the bit for it but i did but we managed not to blow the machine up and now it's nice and nice and zippy <laughs> with eight gigs instead of four <laughs> I, I guess that's good but I felt befuddled. I'm like, well, well I, I thought I had every screwdriver in existence and they introduced yet another screw. Yeah, well, they're trying to keep iFixit in business. You know, I mean, you can't blame them, right? Especially the, well, well uh, I don't know, but you know, the, well, we gapped about it a bit, but the latest uh, MacBook with the retina screen. Yeah. They just don't want you in that thing at all. <laughs> I think they made it very clear. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't think there's much you can do in that machine. Anyway, the, 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 I don't think there's anything user serviceable in there. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. All right. Uh, let me see if I can find the band here. And uh, and we'll wrap up yet another Mac Geek Cab Premium. I know that your premium listeners... And uh, therefore, you almost certainly know how to get in touch with us. But we would be remiss if we didn't take the opportunity to remind you that premium at MacGeekab.com is your special email address. Except for that one person, in which case you can use premium at MacGeekab.com. <laughs> That's right. And that would be premium at MacGeekab.com for you and you alone. You can also call us at 206-666-GEEK, which, John, is? 4335. And uh, let's see. You can visit the lovingly handcrafted show notes at MacGeekGab.com. You can Skype us at MacGeekGab. John, how else can they find us? Uh, Facebook, Facebook.com slash MacGeekGab, where you will see indications that shows and show notes have been posted and there's the twitters i am john efron he's dave hamilton the show is mac geekab pilot pete is pilot pete and mac observer mac observer it, it i don't think it could be simpler than that uh well it could well it could be could it well well it could be in that pilot pete is you know a uh his stage name there. We could use his real name, but you know. That's his stage name. You gotta use your sca- <laughs> you gotta use the stage name, man. <laughs> All right. Uh, and I think I think that's it. Right? We're good to go here. We would of course like to thank Cashfly for the bandwidth of getting this from us to you and Michael Johnston with We Have Communicators and perhaps something else coming soon. 
he takes this show and converts it to AAC for us and for you. And for that, we are forever appreciative of that which he does. We'll be back on, as planned, at least, Sunday night, uh, approximately 8.30 East. Figure by 9 Eastern, everything will be cooking here. That's the plan. We'll see how the weekend treats us, right, John? Yes, sir. Have fun at Pepcom tonight, John. Have a good weekend. And, uh, you know, don't get caught. Made up.